144. Gary asked that we mark that, and we're certainly happy to do that. And for this next part of our service, of course, this evening, our interest for the next few moments to reflect on a section of the Word of God, to appreciate some of that which is found therein, and to make application. We often are so wonderful in that we beseech God to bless us with the capability of implementing that which His Word sets before us. If you would, be turning to the book of Haggai then, that book not far from the end of the Old Testament. In fact, it's the 37th book of the Old Testament. If you will be turning to that, we will continue a series of lessons that we began last Sunday evening. The book of Haggai is perhaps not one of our first books that we turn to for, for meditation and study, but may we never forget it is inspired and it has been preserved for us by the very work of God. And for that reason, the messages in it are useful, beneficial, and often rather powerful. This opening slide is, again, just an introductory one that more or less just points us in the direction of continuing some of those thoughts we noticed last Sunday evening. The sermon last Sunday night was a reference to the first seven verses of chapter 1. Now, the book itself is rather brief, but yet the main thrust that we took out of those verses was the three little words, "'Consider your ways.'" And as God, through the prophet Haggai, sought to stir up the people, they had been brought back from Babylonian captivity, but they had not proceeded to rebuild the temple. They started the work, they laid the foundation, but then the work stopped. Some of that was due to the enemies that frustrated their efforts. But you'll notice God didn't lay it upon that particular reasoning. He told them in those opening verses, you chose to build your sealed houses instead. Their priorities were mixed up. And he said, consider your ways, and we use that to motivate us. What about considering our ways? It's at this point that you and I notice in verse number 6, they had earned wages, but they had put it in a bag with holes. Doesn't that indicate the wastefulness of a life not lived in pursuit to God? Doesn't that indicate the misplaced character of a life with all the potential possibility and blessing, but if it isn't directed toward the pursuit of God, it's just like money that's put into a bag with holes. It's lost. It is not thus that which is laid up to bring the benefit that it could. This evening, as we continue this series... You may notice that, of course, much yet in terms of number of verses, but may I at least set your mind at ease. It's my plan, I think, that we will do the lesson tonight, and then I'll try to finish it in one more lesson. But tonight's lesson, as you may have noted, was entitled National Problems. We're going to take a part of what occurs to us in chapter 1, as well as what occurs in the text of chapter 2, and reference it with respect to national problems. As we do that, this next slide will be one in which I'd like to begin by reading verses 7 through 11 of chapter number 1. Please notice this is a continuation of those efforts we noticed last Sunday evening. It says, beginning in verse 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. 
Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house it is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from a fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands." This slide that's now before us in our effort to develop some of the matters of those verses, it all begins with these observations. I might ask you to notice. God thus encouraged them in verse number 8, Go up to the mountain and bring wood and finish this temple, which you should already have had completed. It's time to get to the work which, in fact, you had begun so many years earlier and had failed to complete, and you had failed to finish it. Would you please note the language, verse number 8. I will take pleasure in it. This building, this house that you have begun but have not yet completed, one of the fears that may have troubled them was, we will never be able to make this building as nice as the one Solomon had built so many years earlier. Maybe they thought we will never be able to ornate it with the gold and the silver and the other fine things that he was able to because we aren't as wealthy as Solomon was. Maybe they began to feel a bit inferior. How can we construct a temple that will be satisfactory? And did you notice what God said? Construct this temple with the wood that you have and I will take pleasure in it. When you and I today pursue the work of God, we may not be able to do it like somebody else can. But when we do what we can with what we have, God will take pleasure in that effort, and it will be used by Him to bring glory to His cause and His kingdom. Isn't that an interesting byproduct of what we observe in these verses? Looking at what's next on that slide, did you notice that verse number 9 paints another rather grim picture? Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. Why? Because of mine house it is waste. Though we'll develop that in somewhat more detail a little bit later in the lesson this evening, you might go ahead and observe it in your mind that some of the problems that are herein noted, we find the reason for it we find the observation of what it was that led to the reality of those issues and those difficulties. Maybe it's fair to say that as we develop that point, we'll attempt to make applications even to our day and even to our time. Let's close that slide then like this. Did you note the listing that God gave? Verse number 11 says, I called for a drought. That I refers to God. God says, I in fact made the declaration, I made the determination that these things were to come to pass. I called for a drought upon the land, upon the mountains, upon the corn, upon the new wine, upon the oil, and also upon that which the ground bringeth forth, upon men, upon cattle. I think we're gaining an impression that matters were somewhat difficult and bleak and very challenging at this time in the history of the nation of Judah. And yet you find that ultimately the reason for those problems 
the reason for their challenges, the reason for the material difficulties that they were facing had to do with the fact that God was bringing it upon them. I suppose at that point, as we close that slide at least, we can make one final observation. Three months later, God in fact gave another oracle to the prophet Haggai, and Haggai brought this oracle before the respective parties. And though I'm going to skip some of the verses, we'll take them up in our next sermon. It's in verses 10 and following of chapter number 2. So turn the page with me, or at least move over to that next chapter. And could I invite you to notice, beginning in verse 10 of Haggai 2, listen to this new piece of information, this new circumstance descriptive of the message that God gave the people through the prophet Haggai. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage, or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days were, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands. Yet you turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine, and the fig tree, and the pomegranate, and the olive tree hath not brought forth. From this day will I bless you. What a dramatic turn. What a rather compelling set of passages. As we develop some of those thoughts starting on this next slide, appreciate that the message that Haggai brought was in all likelihood very unpopular. A message in which God, through him speaking, pointed out rather strongly that the problems that the people were experiencing, the problems that the nation was having, the particular individual challenges they were facing, were due to the fact God brought it upon them. It was due to the fact that God caused it. It was due to the fact prompted by their failure to pursue the things of holiness. Some of the verses we just read, I've tried to develop this way. Go ahead and revisit with me beginning in verse number 12. There, through the prophet, God asked a question. I'd like to pose an issue, God said. In verse number 12, a particular situation in which... Will this particular flesh be reckoned as holy? And the priests answered Haggai's question. 
They said no. Based on that's what the law of Moses had affirmed. And then another question was asked, verse number 13. What about the touching of a corpse? Does it render unclean that which comes in contact with the corpse? And the priest said, yes, it does. Now here's the point. God says, this people is unclean to me. This people, they are unclean. And not only that, every work they attempt to do is unclean. And you and I remember that that declaration of uncleanness rendered it incapable of bringing about that which was at least immediately in in its capability. It had to be cleansed first. And often that meant cleanse it with water and wait until the sun goes down. At this point, God says in verse 14, So is this people, and so is this nation. So is every work of their hands, and that which they offer is unclean. What a resounding judgment. This people who were God's people, this people who had been brought out of captivity by the great blessing of God, and now over these years since, they had become apathetic. They had become indifferent. They had lost focus upon what was truly most significant. They had begun to turn their attention inward instead of fulfilling the commandments of the Lord. This nation is unclean to me, God said. And so in verse number 15, And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward. Now that's Haggai's way of saying from this day forward. A dramatic turn, a renewed interest, a renewed appreciation from this day forward. Things can be different. The temple foundation, the temple in fact now completed based on their effort. Now because of your redirection toward me, because of your renewed zeal and passion for the things of godliness, things can be different. I'd suggest that that principle is just as appropriate today as it ever was then. You may notice on that slide, as the people thus were given the opportunity to make some changes, to make some renewed appreciations, our application of that, of course, will take us for the remainder, really, of our lesson this evening. Under the banner of national problems, the first thing to observe, it would seem to me, is lesson number one. The phrase, the Lord of hosts. As you read the book of Haggai, again, it's a very brief book. Only two chapters, only 38 verses. And yet as you read it, it is difficult to miss that over and over again, in fact, if my count is right, well over 20 times in 38 verses... Either a direct or indirect reference is made to the one speaking who is called the Lord of hosts. It wasn't Haggai's message. It was God's message through him. It was the Lord of hosts doing the speaking. Could I even point you back to verse number 1 of chapter 1? The book opens this way. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord. And that's all we need to note for the moment. It was God's Word that was bringing this information. Is it any wonder then some of these next thoughts are pertinent for our consideration? 
the great God of heaven was interested in the behavior of these people. He hadn't merely cast them off and left them to their own doing. He did allow them to make their choices, but He was concerned for where those choices were leading them, for the kind of lives that they were living in response to these poor choices. Because after all, they were to have been the banner of faithfulness upon earth. They were those supposedly directed as servants to the God of heaven. And yet, they had become indifferent. Their service had become lacking. Their priorities were mixed up. Their failures were evident. No wonder in that light, what about you and me today? Those who are supposed to be the faithful Christians upon earth, those who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, do we need to be shaken up on occasion? Redirected in our consideration for what ultimately is our calling? I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, to borrow the language of Philippians 3.14, You'll notice about the middle of that slide then, with our interest being on the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, look at where that brings us. God has spoken. He has in fact directed His message powerfully. You and I hold it in our hands. We understand the uniqueness of His presentation. That Holy Bible, the Word which Jesus Himself has given to us, and the New Testament Gospel centered upon Him. God has spoken. We quite often, in our way of living, we give a great deal of respect to the words that some people say. Maybe it's a Supreme Court Justice. Maybe it's a legislator. Maybe it's the President. Maybe it's some other renowned official. Maybe it's someone or a place of business or place of employment. But quite often in the understanding of authority, we respect that which is declared. And often that which is declared has a great impact upon our person. In this instance, Haggai made it clear, did he not? It is not uniquely my message. It's the Lord of hosts. It is the God of heaven. Could I direct you again? to verse 5 as well as verse 7 of chapter 1. Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts. And that's why I chose that title for this section of the message. When the Lord of hosts speaks, is it not incumbent upon us to give our full attention and our fullest respect to that which He says? One of the great failures, of course, of our day, as well as that day of Haggai, is that the people had begun their work but had failed to finish it. Can you and I become distracted? We begin an effort or program or some particular service, but then, due to other issues, we may well choose to pursue them instead at the complete forfeiture of the work we started. I suppose all of us at one point or another have failed in that regard. But could we at least notice that in in this instance, God took seriously their failure. It's time for you to build my house, is what He told them. Note again verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. Let's close that slide then like this. The power of the Word of God. I know that as I speak before an assembly such as this one, 
We are well aware of the power of God, but could I just bring to your attention a few verses from other books in the Bible that makes the following points. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. That's from Jeremiah 22, verse 29. In Jeremiah's day, which again was somewhat earlier than the day of Haggai, Jeremiah was before they went into captivity, and even then they were urged and admonished so strongly there is a message from God, and it and it alone can save this nation to point it in the direction of rightfulness so that the captivity might be averted. O earth, 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 triple repetition, hear the word of the Lord. The sad refrain is they weren't interested in hearing. Exactly one chapter later in Jeremiah 23, verse 29, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Rocks can often be very tough, difficult, and yet my word, God says, it can shatter that rock of stubborn rebellion. It can shatter the hardness that can otherwise be in the heart. God's word can do that. I've asked you to notice one final passage in Romans 1.16 in the heart of the New Testament. As Paul himself would write to the church at Rome, he pointed out this interesting statement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The church in Rome was centered, of course, in a very challenging place. The imperial city was there, and yet in the midst of that place was a nucleus of people who had given their life over to the Lord. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it alone is God's power to save. The Greek word that appears there is the word power is the word dunamis. You probably can see some association. It's the word from which we get our English word dynamite. It's what can blast sin and shame out of the life of anybody. Obedience to the Word of God. But with all of that said, reference on to who is the speaker, what about lesson number two? The one that more carefully develops what I chose as the title, National Problems. The problems of Haggai's day were very real. They were also very serious. They were very strong. Let me select just a few of the verses out of the book of Haggai. And though we've read these already, as we place them in a slightly different context, you'll notice that verse number 10 of chapter 1 says, The heaven over you is stayed from dew. They weren't even having much dew at that time. And not only that, that same verse goes on to say, The earth is stayed from her fruit. In an agricultural society, when the crops don't bring forth, there is soon not only great hunger, there's also an impact on many other things that rely upon the forthcoming character of those crops. Look at verse 11, same chapter. There was a serious drought upon the land. Notice also, the dew had been stopped, or at least seriously curtailed. And now there was a drought that impacted the land, the new wine, the mountains, the corn. It impacted all of these things so that even the human personage was suffering dramatically. 
Are you beginning to gain this appreciation with me? The nation was hurting, and they were hurting terribly. Look over to chapter number 2. As you begin to move in that direction, could we at least not offer the following thought? This people had come back from captivity. They had begun a rebuilding project. They had, of course, built their own houses. And you might argue, why didn't God cut them a little understanding? Had they not been through enough already? Was it not the case that they had already endured such a great deal in the captivity? In chapter number 2, Verse number 17. I smote you with blasting. The I refers to God. Blasting refers to a kind, as I've tried to indicate it on the slide, blight. The Hebrew word suggests that here was yet something else besides drought. The crops were afflicted with a kind of occurrence that stymied that turned aside their development, their maturity, their growth. And God said, I brought this upon you. Let's read on further in the verse. And with mildew and with hail. You notice these other diseases, these other occurrences that were greatly impacting the healthfulness of the crops. But then it says, in addition to that, hail. We know how destructive that can be to crops I suppose all of us can at least remember times that we've seen a corn crop devastated when hail comes at the wrong time and right near the time of its, shall we say, maturity and completion. In addition, God says, I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands. The people were putting out their crops and they were putting out their direction and their efforts and their labors and yet they were finding it was coming up much less than what it otherwise had been desired. And the reason? God says, I did it to you. National problems. Let's close verse 17. Why would God do this? Isn't God a God of love? Isn't God a God of mercy and understanding? And doesn't He want His people to be healthful? The closing statement of verse 17, Yet ye turned not to me. There was a more urgent problem. There's something more pressing than the crop failure. It's your heart problem that's causing it. I brought these problems upon you because I wanted to, get, to gain your attention. I wanted for you to think upon the reality of the reflection of what has caused this and to turn your heart to me. And to follow me, to look upon the nature of what I have commanded you, and to follow it with obedience and with faithfulness and with passion. Yet ye turned not to me. Think with me for a moment about the sadness of a parent who disciplines a child. A parent in love will discipline perhaps grounding a child or even corporal punishment as the case may be, but with an effort because the behavior of that child is not only hurtful for the time being, but in the years to come, if not corrected, it will even become more serious. There will be greater problems and more difficult things to deal with. 
And so as the parent disciplines, and yet, what if, what if the child doesn't learn anything? Despite the discipline, the child continues to behave this way. Despite the great love and mercy, the child doesn't have any interest in changing. Oh, how sad that is. It breaks the parent's heart. It causes so much mental anguish, restless nights. Yet here is God as a loving Father trying to chastise and discipline Judah. I brought all of these things upon you and you didn't listen. You didn't hear me. Yet you turn not to me. You can almost hear the sadness in the tone of God's voice, but may I ask us, don't, let's don't give up complete hope because of some things that are about to come next Sunday or in the next lesson on Sunday night. But can we not at least say this? As I mentioned earlier, from this day forward, from this day forward, God said it twice, I will bless you. I will bring again what the years have taken. I will bring back to you that which you have earlier lost due to your unfaithfulness. And if you now will be faithful to me, having completed this temple, everything can be much different. The crops will bring forth again. Things will be much more blessed in your favor. As far as national problems, I think we all expected that at some point we were going to attempt to make applications to our land. We too, as a nation, have been so abundantly blessed. No one would question or doubt that statement. Yesterday was the 244th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And of course, at that period in time, the desire and the work on the part of a whole host of people to found a new nation upon principles of rightness, upon principles that were much different than what they had experienced in Europe and in other places. And yet, as that nation was founded and pursued some of those things, there was an incredible degree of being blessed materially. For decades thereafter, the rise of the American economy, the pursuit of those things so careful and noted in our nation was evident for all to see. In fact, records detail at one point that there was an emissary, an ambassador from the nation of France that came to this land. And he came in the middle to latter part of the 1800s. And his sole reason for coming was, I wanted to know why this nation is so blessed. It was clear by comparing it to France that at the time was dealing with the, the age of enlightenment. And there was a cynicism in Europe and a, such a different feeling. And this person wanted to know, why is America so abundant? So blessed, so fertile. It didn't take him long to find the answer. In his memoirs, he wrote, I understood when I attended the religious services and found the Word of God flaming with passion in the minds and the hearts of a people who love the Word of God. I found in them, and I found in that circumstance, the answer to my question. And America has, of course, enjoyed a superpower character now for a long, long time. But as you can well tell on this next slide, we all know that there's a very different feeling 
in our land these days. And perhaps for quite some time, we have noticed that crime seems to be very much on the rise. The educational system, it seems, is being crushed beneath the load of many failures. The moral fabric of our land is literally being ripped apart at the seams. And to go even further than that, we seemingly find a great distrust between our leaders and the people, at least on the whole. We find a sense of tension that is, at least in this day and time, extraordinarily great. Culturally and and the ethnic character of our land, there is such division and such tension. One couldn't help but ask the question, in Haggai's day, the problems that they were facing were brought upon them because of their faithlessness. I wanted you to turn to me, but you didn't. And these things I allowed to happen, I brought them upon you so that I could get your attention, but you did not turn to me. Could it be that some of the things that we're now seeing are matters that ought to turn a nation in heartfelt character to what it once had enjoyed 150 years ago or so? Or what it once had understood as a basis for behavior? What it once understood as the character of what led to strength in the person and in the nation? That's what was needed to be done in Haggai's day. Is it any less pertinent today? Is it any less needful today? Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. To borrow the wording of Proverbs 14.34, Any nation that forgets God shall be turned into hell. Psalm 9 verse 17. Psalm 50 verse 22 will go on to say that those who forget God, their end is so bleak. We as a nation have the opportunity, you see, just as it was in Haggai's day, from this day forward, if there were to be wholesale repentance, if there were to be a wholesale change of attitude that led to a change in behavior, then from this day forward we could enjoy something similar to what Haggai's people did. But you notice that it was predicated upon a return to the Lord of hosts. Our national problems. Sin, you see, will bring about many things. It, of course, is hurtful to the person because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But not only that, it brings about a cankering of one's perspective. It separates one from God and brings about a perspective which is not consistent with the viewpoint that God would have us adopt, and that consequence impacts so many additional things. It impacts the educational system. It impacts the morality of the people. It impacts the character of pursuit. It even impacts the way one looks upon religion. In our land, many things, many problems. And isn't it true that so many of them can be connected rather directly to a failure to honor God? May we in wisdom and in prudence... May we, with a heartfelt desire, seek like they of Haggai's day to learn better than this. Because wasn't it at one time so much sweeter? Wasn't it so much more peaceful? 
wasn't it so much more to our liking as a nation? I know we've always had our problems. Even any record from decades gone by would affirm that. But there at least was a sense of togetherness, a sense of unity, and a sense of appreciation of strength and might. And in many instances, in many instances, even that is lacking today. Haggai's day will point us out then this. We have one more lesson, and you and I will look at some intent at that next time. But that last lesson is going to turn us in a positive direction, and I think we're all excited about that consideration. But in this last consideration, it is going to be a remarkable observation. It'll also be drawn from that book, and may I ask us as we prepare for it, there's a set of verses in chapter 2 I did not read tonight. Our lesson will primarily be drawn from that set of verses. At this point in the lesson this evening, there might be problems in your individual life or mine. And in many instances, those two can be connected to a failure in terms of God. In other words, He's trying to get my attention or yours because things need to be different. If that is true in your life tonight, if you know you are a wayward child of God, at one time you knew the peace and the solace and the comfort that came with serving God, and He was the most important thing to you, and you loved his, the Lord and you loved the church. But over the course of time, maybe that has changed. Maybe service has become indifferent. Maybe God is more an afterthought to you than anything else. If that's true... Why don't you make some changes? If you will allow Him to do so from this day forward, your life will be different. It'll be filled with joy and hope. It'll be filled with that which is truly significant and meaningful. If we could be of some assistance to you tonight in that regard, we would offer this invitation because it's the Lord's invitation. Come unto me, He said, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Matthew eleven twenty eight. This evening, if we could be of some help and some assistance, won't you come while we stand and sing this elected song?